long before the sex symbols of today and at the dawn of the 20th century, in the days when newspapers and magazines carried all the news and impressions, there was one, and only one, Mata Hari. Before her, countless others, some whose names have been forgotten, others well-remembered, like Cleopatra, and Salome, Helen of Troy, left legends that will exist as long as stories are told. And of these women who inspired visions among men, simply by being in the same room. There is another type of woman, the one the French gave a name to, the femme fatale, meaning loosely, Lady Death, or Lady of Death. This woman's charms led others, sometimes whole armies, or sometimes just themselves, to destruction. Her name was known and whispered worldwide when the subject of provocative women came up. Little girls were sent to their room for getting caught by mom, wrapped in veils and dancing like Matahari. Marriages were wrecked by husbands who were known to have been seen in her company. The Paris and European theaters in which she performed her exotic dances were packed with standing room only. Her scanty outfit caused public outrages. Pictures and newspaper accounts of Matahari were everywhere. She was seen on the arms of some of the most famous men in her time. Her life, her movements, her men were chronicled in detail for the public to read for 10 years, from 1906 to 1917. But war changes everything, and World War I, which began in 1914, was no exception. Germany had invaded France. Times were hard, and families were starving. Many were literally living on crumbs. Young men were dying by the tens of thousands and many more were returning home badly wounded. A growing resentment began to fester in the minds of the French people for the young and beautiful woman they thought to be French and who was known to wear furs and spend money lavishly, to travel around Europe as if she was immune to the threat of war, and to fraternize with any man with money, even if he was considered to be the enemy. In 1917, she was accused by the French of spying for the Germans sharing French military secrets with German intelligence in return for payment, a crime punishable by imprisonment and death by firing squad. In wartime, she became a willing pawn for a number of intelligence agencies, agencies who were willing to pay her handsomely for information she had gleaned during her nightly escapades, which had increased in number as her stage appearances decreased, with age taking a toll on her dancing. When her trial came, she did not get the best representation. The people and agencies that could have cleared her chose not to, seeming intent on throwing her to the wolves. In recent years, the pieces to her life story have come together to form a compelling picture. While formerly classified documents from her trial and from the agencies she worked for have slowly become available, she was a legend. Her name is still remembered today, 101 years later, and probably will be for centuries to come. She lived larger than life and left her mark, making mistakes along the way and leaning way too heavily upon the altar of wealth and luxury to which she had become dependent. In the end, she was handed a raw deal. She didn't deserve a firing squad. The soldiers in the red uniforms might have put the last bullet in her, but others were busy behind the scenes making sure it all went down the way it did. This is her story.
She was born Margarita Gertruda Zell, August 7, 1876, in Leeuwarden, Friesland, Netherlands, the only daughter and eldest child of a Dutch hatmaker. Even at the very beginning of her life, it was clear that Margarita Zell would become someone extraordinary. From the early days of her childhood in northern Holland, she stood out, flamboyant, striking in appearance, bold, bright, and gifted in languages. One schoolmate compared her to an orchid among dandelions, contrasting her dark, exotic looks with the fair skin and blonde hair of most other Dutch children. She learned as a young girl that she could get what she wanted by pleasing men, starting with her doting father, Adam Zell. Margarita was her father's overwhelming favorite, and he showered her with extravagant gifts. In 1889, however, Margarita's father, who had lost his wealth through some bad investments in oil shares, abandoned the family and ran off with another woman to live in The Hague. Her mother and father divorced, and soon after, her mother, Angie Zell, died. After her mother's death, Margarita, thoroughly spoiled and precociously sexual at age 14, was sent away to live with her godfather in Leiden, a Dutch province in southern Holland, and she began studying to become a teacher. At 16, she was expelled for having an affair with the married headmaster of the school, from whom she was receiving cash advances. From there, she then moved to The Hague, a city full of colonial officials who had returned from service in the Dutch East Indies, which is modern-day Indonesia. At 18, bored, miserable, and desperate for some kind of adventure, she answered a newspaper advertisement posted by one such official, Captain Rudolph John McLeod. And that's where her troubles began. He was looking to meet and marry, quote, a girl of pleasant character, end quote. Marriage to such a man seemed the perfect path to a better life. Marguerite, the new officers in the Indies, lived in large houses with many servants. I wanted to live like a butterfly in the sun, she said in a later interview. He was handsome, with what she described as a splendid mustache. She was tall and elegant, with flirty dark eyes and a dark olive complexion. He was almost twice her age and was a hard-drinking officer in the East Indies Army. The attraction was immediate, sexual, and very strong. She told him she longed to do crazy things, and they were engaged six days after meeting each other. They married a few months later in July of 1895. Their son, Norman John, was born January 30, 1897 and by May of that year, they were on board the SS Princess Amelia, bound for his new duty station in Melang, on the east side of the island of Java. It was on that journey that Margarita discovered her husband had given her syphilis, a disease rampant among Dutch colonial soldiers. There was no known cure at that time, though treatment with toxic mercury compounds was believed, erroneously, to be the cure. Upon arriving in the Dutch colony, MacLeod continued his wild ways. This angered Margarita, who attracted attention from other men for her beauty and flirtatious manner, which infuriated her husband. She had been hoping for the good life, but life did not turn out as expected. For MacLeod was an alcoholic, he was working up great debts, and he was known to abuse Margarita, especially when drunk, and kept a concubine, which was an acceptable custom in the Dutch East Indies, but understandably rough on a marriage. Marguerite abandoned him temporarily, moving in with another Dutch officer named Van Reeds, 
and began studying dance with a local dance company, where she came up with a name that would soon become a legend, Matahari, the words meaning the sun or eye of the day. She had a second child in 1898, a daughter named Juana Luisa, but the marriage remained deeply troubled. Margarita wrote that MacLeod came close to murdering me with a bread knife. I owe my life to a chair that fell over, which gave me time to find my way out the door and get help. In 1899, MacLeod was promoted to garrison commander in another part of the Dutch East Indies and left his wife and family behind to find a house there. There was a great amount of hostility between them, to the degree that MacLeod attempted to cut off her credit in the town and at the base by posting an order that no one could extend any credit to his wife. Both children fell ill, possibly from congenital syphilis, and possibly from poisoning by a native soldier who had received a terrible beating from MacLeod for reasons still unknown today. It is known that the native soldier was in love with the MacLeod household nurse, and possibly MacLeod thought the soldier had been having an affair with his wife. It is thought that the soldier, or the nurse, seeking revenge on MacLeod, poisoned the children, adding the poison to the sauce that was poured over the children's rice. Margrethe thought the nurse had done it, but didn't know why, as they had no problems with her. And in this case, Margrethe was probably right, because she would have been there to witness the severe reaction right after eating that meal. The children were terribly sick. MacLeod was wired and advised to return to his family. When the family was reunited, MacLeod called the base doctor. Used to treating grown men, the doctor overdosed both children with mercury, the known treatment then, and they spewed up black vomit and writhed in agony. When their two-year-old son died, everyone on the base had a different guess as to what had caused it. Scandal was hanging in the air, enough so that it led to MacLeod's demotion and posting to a small, remote station in Java. He soon retired with a military pension in 1900, but the battle between husband and wife continued. As a side note, Salverson, the first effective treatment for syphilis, was discovered in 1910, too late to save Greta's children from the deadly disease their father had given them. Penicillin was to become, and still is, the accepted treatment today, that arriving in the early 1940s. The couple didn't bother to disguise their mutual hatred. In 1902, they returned to the Netherlands and separated. A divorce would ensue, although Margaretha initially won custody of her daughter who had survived the sickness. Louise Jean, as they called her, would be raised by her father. Margaretha could not stand being anywhere near John MacLeod. She not only feared for her life around him, but she had no income and no way of caring for her daughter. In 1903, she made the fateful choice to leave her daughter with her husband and strike out on her own. Her only assets, her looks, and her dance ability. She headed for Paris. She began sleeping with men for money. She wrote to her ex-husband's cousin, whom she trusted, Don't think that I'm bad at heart. I have done it only out of poverty. She met a circus owner who suggested that she might do well as a dancer, and he lined her up with the circus, performing a temple dance on the back of a horse. She went from there to modeling. A profound and fateful transformation was taking place in the young Dutchwoman. Borrowing from her travels and sorrows in the Indies, Margarita Zell reinvented herself as something startling and new, an exotic dancer called Matahari. In 1905, Matahari, 
as previously discussed, the melee term for sunrise or eye of the day, broke onto the social scene with a performance in the Musée Guimet, an Asian art museum in Paris. Invitations were issued to 600 of the capital's wealthy elite. Matahari presented utterly novel dances in transparent, revealing costumes, a jeweled bra, and an extraordinary headpiece. Under any other circumstances, she could have been arrested for indecency, but Marguerite Zell had very carefully thought through her position. At each performance, she took the time to explain carefully that these were sacred temple dances from the Indies, even though they weren't. They were rituals performed in Eastern temples, she said, and her dances were a sacred poem. Matahari was sensuous, beautiful, erotic, and emotional. She told tales of lust, jealousy, passion, and vengeance through her dancing, and the public lapped it up. And how could anyone criticize her, showing her sacred faith? And was it her fault she looked sinfully good while she was doing this? That appearance at the Musée Guimet in Paris in 1905 made her an overnight success. She marketed herself heavily, allowing newspapers to photograph her in revealing costumes, wearing a beaded metallic bra, which never came off, as she was self-conscious about her chest size. But the veils that covered the rest of her floated freely as she danced with a slow, undulating movement, opposed for the photographer. The critics wrote with shaky pens, feline, trembling in a thousand rhythms, exotic yet deeply austere, slender and supple like a sacred serpent. They couldn't get enough. And she was talking to her fans in five different languages, French, Dutch, English, German, and Malay. My dance is a sacred poem. One must always translate the three stages that correspond to the divine attributes of Brahma, Ishtu, and Shiva, creation, fecundity, and destruction. In an age when every rich and influential man wanted a beautiful mistress on his arm, Matahari soon was acknowledged as the most glamorous, fascinating, and desirable woman in Paris. She was seen with aristocrats, diplomats, financiers, top military officers, and wealthy businessmen, men who kept her in furs, jewels, horses, silver, furniture, and chic accommodations simply for the pleasure of being in her company. For years, she danced in sold-out performances in nearly every major European capital. By 1908, there were few people in Europe who could afford it who hadn't seen her act. Her dancing career began to wind down. She was still in demand as a courtesan and enjoyed the company of rich and powerful men. The outbreak of World War I in 1914 did not alter her extravagance. She seemed not to grasp that ordinary people resented her ostentatious lifestyle, while French families were doing without basics, coal, clothing, foodstuffs. They were sending their fathers, husbands, brothers, and sons to be killed in the war, while she continued to live in comfort and plenty. Her daughter couldn't help but hear of her mother's fame, and Greta was trying to get her back, working through intermediaries, but with her reputation, that wasn't about to happen. Meanwhile, young Jean Louisa was riding to school by streetcar carrying her lunch in a Mata Hari biscuit tin and telling her friends, I can't talk about my mother the way I would like to. I've heard so many rumors about her life in Paris, but every time I ask my father about what happened, 
"'He gets terribly vague. "'No meeting was ever arranged "'between Greta and Jean Louise, "'even when her mother was in The Hague. "'Jean Louise graduated from Teachers College in The Hague "'and spent a year as a kindergarten teacher in Velp, "'while she lived with her father in Disteg. "'She would die in her sleep in 1919, two years after her mother's execution, "'at the age of 21, never knowing her mother.' except through what she read and heard. Matahari continued to travel, which brought her to the attention of the counter-espionage world. The fall of 1915 found her in The Hague, where the exotic dancer was paid a visit by Karl Kromer, the honorary German consul of Amsterdam. The Netherlands had remained neutral in World War I and had become the hub for spies and secret negotiators. He offered her 20,000 francs, equivalent to 61,000 in today's currency, to spy for Germany. She accepted the funds, which she viewed as repayment for her furs, jewels, and money the Germans had seized when the war broke out. Even so, she didn't accept the job. Returning by sea from the Netherlands to France in December of that year, 1915, she and all of the passengers were questioned in Folkestone, a British port, by an intelligence officer. Nothing incriminating was found in the search of her person and luggage, but the officer noted, quote, She speaks French, English, Italian, Dutch, and probably German. Handsome, bold type of woman, well and fashionably dressed. End quote. His verdict on her? Quote, Not above suspicion. Most unsatisfactory. Should be refused permission to return to the UK. End quote. A British intelligence officer in Holland now added to Matahari's dossier with rumors about payments to her from the German embassy. He added, with no evidence whatsoever. One suspects her of having gone to France on an important mission that will profit the Germans. In Paris, Matahari resumed her glamorous life, living at the Grand Hotel and with plenty of men in uniform to keep her occupied. She did not know that two secret policemen were tailing her. They steamed open her letters, questioned porters, waitresses, and hairdressers, and collected abundant evidence of her love life, but not of espionage. She spent a day and a night with the Marquis de Beaufort, had a flirtatious dinner with a purveyor of fine liquors, and then met another lover, who embarrassingly, for the secret policeman, was a senior colleague from their own bureau. But her main intention at this time was to get a permit to go to the town of Vittel, which was in the Eastern War Zone. Because she was desperate to see the man with whom she had fallen deeply in love, a Russian captain, 18 years her junior, named Vladimir de Maslov. For that, she had to apply to the head of French intelligence, Captain Georges Ledoux, an ambitious man who had staked his reputation on France being riddled with foreign spies and his being able to destroy their network. He was in need of an attention-grabbing case to prove the worth of his bureau. He regarded Matahari as little better than a prostitute. She thought him small-minded and coarse. They fenced words with each other. She wanted her past to Vittel. He agreed if she promised to enlist as a spy for France. Author Pat Shipman wrote in Love, Lies, and the Unknown Life of Matahari that the entire encounter was bizarre. She argues, if Matahari was already a German spy, as Ledoux believed, then he was foolhardy to try to recruit her to be a French one. 
Matahari was known by sight throughout Europe. Her comings and goings were reported in gossip columns. Wherever she went, she was the center of attention. Shipman wrote, It is difficult to imagine a woman less able to engage in clandestine activities. But Matahari did accept Ledoux's offer, as long as she was given enough money to pay off her massive debts and settle down with Vadim. The great seductress wanted out of the game. In 1916, the war was going badly for the French. Two of the longest and bloodiest battles of the war, Verdun and the Somme, pitted the French against the Germans for months at a time. The mud, bad sanitation, disease, and the newly introduced horror of phosgene gas led to the death or maiming of hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Eventually, French troops became so demoralized that some refused to fight. Ledoux felt the arrest of a prominent spy could raise French spirits and recharge the war effort. Oblivious to the role being prepared for her, Matahari was preoccupied with other matters. In the summer of 1916, Masloff had been shot down and badly wounded in a dogfight with a German plane, losing sight in one eye and in danger of going completely blind. She wanted to visit him in the hospital where he was staying near the front, so she contacted an old friend named Jean Helleur, who she thought might have the contacts to get her a safe conduct pass to visit Masloff. Safe conduct passes were not easy to get. If you saw the movie Casablanca, the entire plot was based around the safe conduct pass that the bar owner Rick, played by Humphrey Bogart, kept beneath the lid of the piano where Sam ended up playing it again for Ingrid Bergman. Casablanca is one of our past episodes and one of my favorites. Anyway, Halour agreed to help her, and she was soon met by agents of the French intelligence services Deuxième Bureaus, or Second Bureau who told her that she would only be allowed to see him if she agreed to spy on Germany. One of those French agents was Georges Ledoux, who would end up being the man who was mainly responsible for Matahari's demise. Ledoux had already been gathering information on her and was using her love for Maslov to get what he wanted from her, which was to have her seduce Germany's crown prince Wilhelm, a known womanizer with a direct line to the throne and now a senior German general assigned to the front. Ledoux offered her one million francs if she could seduce the crown prince in order to gain access to military secrets, and she accepted. He had never intended to pay her, of course, just use her. She never made it to the crown prince, but she was sent to Madrid on a spy mission for Ledoux. He wanted her to go to Belgium, but first she insisted on seeing Maslov. She made it to Vittel to see Maslov and had a blissful interlude in the spa town with her Russian lover. On her return to Paris, Ledoux sent her on the first mission to German-occupied Belgium, where, she had told Ledoux, an ex-lover could steer her into the arms of the German military governor. But Belgium proved impossible to reach, and she ended up in Spain. She had originally boarded the SS Hollandia, as instructed by her handler and agency head, Ledoux. The passengers were stopped en route, and Matahari found herself questioned at a British port she was taken to London by agents for further interrogation, which she carried out in several languages. As had happened on a previously mentioned occasion when she had been questioned by British authorities, nothing incriminating was found on her. But Matahari became terrified when they decided to hold her as they tried to establish whether she was indeed Margaretha Zell MacLeod or Clara Benedict, a German agent whom she vaguely resembled. Desperate for release, Matahari confessed on November 16th 
1916 to being an agent from France employed by Ledoux, whom the British authorities then contacted. Ledoux later reported that his answer was, quote, understand nothing, send Matahari back to Spain, end quote. This was a flat-out betrayal of his own agent. The British files summarize his reply in the following words, quote, that Ledoux had suspected her for some time and pretended to employ her in order, if possible, to obtain definitive proof that she was working for the Germans. He would be happy to hear that her guilt had been clearly established. End quote. The fix was in. In Madrid, Matahari did manage to seduce a senior German diplomat named Arnold van Kali, who had been posted to the Spanish capital in an effort to set up an opportunity where she could meet the crown prince and ply Van Kali for information. She did get information from him and sent it to Ledoux, but received no reply from him. Meanwhile, Ledoux had given her the names of six Belgian agents. Five were suspected of submitting false material and working for the Germans, while the sixth was suspected of being a double agent for Germany and France. Now, why had Ledoux done that? Of course, to make her story believable, to Van Kali. She was told to share it with him, no doubt. Her report to Ledoux read, Becoming more intimate, Kali offered me cigarettes. I made myself very attractive. I played with my feet. I did that which a woman may do when she wishes to make a conquest of a man. And I knew Van Kali was mine. She believed she was going to be paid and that this spy game was exciting and fun. But Ledoux had not come across with a million francs. She was out of money. Van Kali had her information checked out, and within two weeks, it ordered the execution of the double agent. That turned out to be blood on Matahari's hands. He asked her to deliver more French secrets to him, and he offered her money. She took the money, figuring on building a nest egg for her one true love, Maslow, and knowing full well that she didn't have any secrets to share except what Ladoux gave her. Maybe not the wisest of moves, but heck, this spy game was great. She was making money from both sides, and all she had to do was sleep with people. She told Ledoux about Van Kali and said she had accepted money for him for spying. On the other side, Ledoux and company were not getting any useful German information and were planning a way to take her down. She was making it too easy. By now, his department had intercepted phone messages from her hotel phone in Madrid to Van Kali as she played the role of double agent. This would be used against her in court. The war was wearing on. All news was bad news in those desperate months before America entered the war, and the French people needed a scapegoat. Ladue needed an intelligence win, and Matahari was the perfect patsy. In Madrid, Matahari also established relationships with Colonel Joseph Denvignes from the French legation, who fell passionately in love with her. He grew enraged when she dined or danced with other men. To calm his jealousy, she naively explained that she worked for Ledoux and recounted all the secrets she had learned. De Vignes asked her to obtain more information about the Moroccan plan from Cali, plans which she had shared with Ledoux. But when she did, her questions made Van Cali suspicious. Since De Vignes was shortly traveling to Paris, Matahari wrote a lengthy letter full of information and asked De Vignes to deliver it to Ledoux. While Matahari was conquering the German diplomats in Madrid in December of 1916, Ledoux ordered all radio messages between Madrid and Berlin to be intercepted and monitored 
using a listening post located on the Eiffel Tower. He later claimed the messages clearly identified Matahari as a German spy. No doubt they did. Ledoux had done a good job setting her up. When the exotic dancer returned to Paris, expecting a reward for the intelligence she had passed on in that letter, Ledoux refused to see her. She finally made contact, but he denied receiving any communication through Den Vignes. When she went to the Deuxième Bureau, she was told Den Vignes was unknown. Only later did it become apparent that there was something odd about the intercepted radio messages from the Eiffel Tower. The French file numbers indicate that the messages naming Matahari as a spy were brought to the prosecutor's attention by Ledoux in April that year. Not December and January, when Ledoux claimed they were sent. Seemingly, Ledoux was the only person to have seen the original messages prior to their decoding and translation. It also transpired that the original messages had disappeared from the file. He had to change up some of the words that might have shown she was trying to be loyal to Ledoux and France in the end. With Ledoux's changes, the content of these messages were about to be used with devastating effect against Matahari. Later, Ledoux would himself be arrested on espionage charges, but his detention came several days too late to save Matahari, and he was eventually cleared. Some writers, most notably the previously mentioned Pat Shipman, in her book Femme Fatale, Love, Lies, and the Unknown Life of Matahari, published by William Morrow, believed that Ledoux was a German agent who placed himself high up in the French intelligence service. I recall that Ledoux was the man who had initially contacted Eugene Boulard, who owned a nightclub and gym in Paris, to spy on his German patrons in the years leading up to World War II, 20 years after this story, and that he was still head of French intelligence then, and that he hadn't spilled the beans on Boulard's actions. Boulard was the first African-American combat pilot and served for France in World War I, earning two Croix de Guerres and various other medals, becoming the hero of France. His story was told recently at 1001 Heroes in the episode All Blood Runs Red. I think Ledoux was not a German agent, but he did set up Matahari for the fall. He had gotten what he wanted, and she was expendable. By late January 1917, Matahari had returned to Paris and was becoming frantic. Not only had Ledoux shunned her, he also had not paid her. She had not heard from Maslow in some time. She wasn't aware that French intelligence was holding back his letters, and was worried that he had again been wounded. She was running out of money and moved to increasingly cheaper hotels in the French capital. On February 10, 1917, a warrant for her arrest was signed by the French war minister. Three days later, police officers knocked on the door of her hotel room and found her eating breakfast in a lace-trimmed dressing gown. She was not as wild rumors around Paris soon claimed, naked. Her room was searched and her possessions seized. Her interrogator was Pierre Bouchardon, the investigative magistrate of the Third Council of War, a hard man, not known to show mercy to suspected criminals, and who was especially disapproving of immoral women. His diary reveals his immense hatred for man-eaters like Matahari. He placed her in isolation in the most horrific prison in Paris, Saint-Lazare. She slept in flea and rat-infested cells and had no soap for washing. She was denied access to her possessions, medical treatment, clean clothing, lingerie, 
and money for food and stamps for letters. She had infrequent contact with her lawyer, a former lover named Edouard Clunet, who was pitifully naive about military trials, but who also was stonewalled by the changes in the law due to the war, which denied attorney privileges, such as being able to sit in on all but the first and last interrogations. And more importantly, they denied him access to letters and documents that would have helped prove she was being used as a pawn by French intelligence, which would not admit to offering her money to spy on the Germans. As the days lengthened into months, Matahari began to realize that she was in real danger of prosecution. After three months, she fell into a state of extreme anxiety and begged by letter, by many letters, for mercy. She pleaded hysterically to see her solicitor Clunet, and especially to see Maslov. Even Maslov's letters asking her to come visit him in hospital were withheld from her. Remanded for trial on eight charges, the next phase of Matahari's ordeal began on July 24, 1917. Ladue's telegrams and radio messages, now considered to have been doctored, were the only real evidence against her. The seven men who served as jurors were all military men. One, in a memoir, repeated a rumor that Matahari had caused to be killed about 50,000 of our children, not counting those who found themselves on board vessels torpedoed in the Mediterranean upon the information given by her, no doubt. No evidence brought up at the trial supported these slanders. Matahari's imprisonment was a big catch for the French, who were more than eager to deal out supreme punishment for anyone who they believed had been collaborating with Germany and there had been so much death and bloodletting that the execution of a woman that most considered to be a wealthy prostitute wasn't going to make much of a ripple. At the Palace of Justice, she had faced Pierre Bouchardon, previously mentioned, the magistrate of the Third Council of War. He later wrote, From the very first interview, I had the intuition that she was a person in the pay of our enemies. I had but one thought, to unmask her. The cards were stacked against her from the start, Everything she said was construed to be a confession. She had accepted money from a German officer, and she admitted it. She was taking money from every man who would pay. In fact, when she started to talk about the French officers she had slept with, they didn't want to hear about it. In fact, they wanted to make sure she was silenced. One big reason she was placed in solitary confinement at Saint-Lazare. As previously stated, she was denied everything. Each of the charges against her was vague, mentioning no specific secrets passed to the enemy. Of Matahari's immoral lifestyle, however, abundant evidence was presented. One of the policemen who had tailed her through Paris revealed her extravagant spending, as well as her lovers of considerable influence and of diverse nationalities. Even though none of the items in her room indicated espionage, testimony about her personal effects was given at trial. Ledoux testified about those intercepted messages which showed she was a German agent, but not that she had passed any information. Clunet's defense was completely ineffectual. He produced some eminent men who testified that Matahari was a charming lady who never asked about military matters. Henri de Marjorie, secretary to the French Foreign Affairs Minister and a lover of Matahari since 1905, defended her fiercely. Nothing had ever spoiled my good opinion of this lady, he said. He even accused the prosecutor of accepting a case he knew was false. Indeed, the prosecutor later confessed there was not enough evidence to flog a cat. Her trial began on July 14, 1917. 
The only evidence against her was Ladue's telegrams and radio messages indicating that he suspected her of spying on France. There was no proof. Most of the testimony brought against her was evidence of her immoral behavior, and there was no shortage of first- and second-hand testimony to that. Even today, 101 years later, we still see tampering with documents going on at the highest levels of government, done for political purposes with the intention of rescuing party favorites from execution. So it's not hard to believe that anyone intent on doing away with Matahari could easily have done so. There was much less oversight then. She spent her last birthday, her 41st, in cell 12, despondently waiting for her sentence to be carried out. Convicted on all eight counts against her, Matahari was sentenced to be executed by a firing squad. Attempts to commute the sentence to a prison term were denied, as were appeals for a presidential pardon. Her execution was carried out in great secrecy early in the morning of October 15, 1917. She was led at daybreak from her cell at St. Lazare Prison. Father Arbeau, accompanied by two Sisters of Grace, Captain Beauchardon, and Maitre Clunet, her lawyer, entered her cell where she was sleeping. The sisters gently shook her. She arose and was told her hour had come. May I write two letters? she asked. Captain Bouchardon nodded, and a pen, ink, papers, and envelope were handed to her. She seated herself at the edge of the bed and wrote the letters quickly, then handed them to her lawyer. Then she drew on her black silk stockings, placed her high-heeled slippers on her feet, and tied the silken ribbons over her insteps. She arose from her bed and took the long black velvet cloak edged around the bottom with fur and with a huge square fur collar hanging down the back from a hook overhanging her bed. She placed this coat over her heavy silk kimono with which she had been wearing her nightdress. Her black hair, which had become filthy through three months of imprisonment without a chance to wash it with soap, was coiled about her head in braids. Strands of gray were showing in her hair. She put on a large, floppy black felt hat with a black silk ribbon and bow. Then slowly, she pulled on her black kid gloves. Then she said in a calm voice, I am ready. They filed out of her cell to the waiting automobile at half past 5 a.m., and she was driven to an old abandoned fort named Caserbe de Vincennes. She was walked to an open area and shown where to stand, which was in front of an eight-foot-high berm that would stop any bullets that passed her. A squad of the 4th Regiment of Zouaves, mostly very young men in khaki uniforms with red fezes, supervised by the Sergeant Major of the 23rd Dragoons, had been given the grisly responsibility of executing Matahari. As Father Arbeau began to deliver the last rites, a French officer approached, carrying a white cloth. The blindfold, he whispered to the nuns who were standing to the side. Matahari saw him offered and asked, Must I wear that? To which the officer answered, If Madame prefers not, it makes no difference. And he turned away. She was not bound and not blindfolded. She stood gazing steadfastly at her executioners. They had all been told that one of their single-shot rifles had been loaded with a blank, so they would never know if their bullet had killed her or not. A mercy shown to them, if not her. Translated to English here, the officer in charge barked out, Ready? Aim. Fire. And eleven rifles answered. For a long moment, she stood motionless, then collapsed slowly first to her knees, 
and then to her side. No one moved. Finally, the sergeant major in charge uttered, By God, that lady knows how to die. For the past 100 years, Matahari has been revered as the ultimate femme fatale, a seductive, glamorous, exotic dancer who spied for the Germans during World War I and caused the deaths of thousands of Allied soldiers, people say. She captured the imaginations of people around the world long after she met her fate. Historians are now debunking many of the myths about Matahari that have endured for decades. Earlier this year, trial archives kept confidential by the French have been released to the public, and a catch of Matahari's personal and family letters has been recently published. Taken together, the documents recast the Great War's most notorious spy as a mother who left an abusive marriage and as a scapegoat for war-torn France looking to distract from heavy casualties on the front lines. Perhaps the most significant plot twist to Matahari's legacy is that she did not divulge any information of consequence to the Germans. Shamed in the international press as a traitor, she was accused of revealing closely kept secrets about Allied tanks, leading to the deaths of thousands of soldiers. Her relationships with German and French officers put her under special scrutiny, as did her travels crisscrossing through Europe during the war. Matahari was an innocent victim of circumstances beyond her control, circumstances which were dealt to her entirely by the men in her life, her father by abandoning her, her husband with his drunkenness and infidelity, and the men of her adopted country, France, who used her, then threw her to the wolves, and the jurors who declared her guilty. She was forced to make tough choices, and she naively put herself in situations beyond her control, allowing her actions to be guided by her need for acceptance and luxury. She summed up her situation perfectly in that last letter she had written to Attorney Clunet on the day of her execution. There was never any concrete evidence against me, only documents that have been tampered with, but you will never publicly admit that you allowed an innocent woman to die. Innocent? Perhaps that's not the right word. I was never innocent, but I thought I could manipulate those who wanted state secrets. In the end, I was the one manipulated, convicted of espionage, even though the only thing concrete I traded was the gossip from high society salons. I never revealed anything new. Hello, everyone. All of us in the podcast business like to share referrals with other shows we like. And one of my favorites is Astonishing Legends. They love researching and analyzing amazing stories, just like we do here at 1001 Heroes. And their topics run the gamut from supernatural to mysterious places, people, and historical events. The co-hosts, Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess, have an interesting style that gets you hooked and captivates the imagination. My two favorite episodes that come to mind are Skinwalker Ranch and Kincaid's Cave in the Grand Canyon. Plus, we've overlapped a few times on Amelia Earhart. They do a good job of trying to give you all the facts and walking the line between skepticism and belief. And they do a good job with guest interviews, especially people who have experienced paranormal phenomena, as they just did in a recent series of episodes on Resurrection Mary. They use a team of researchers they call the Astonishing Legend Corps, and they go deep, sometimes taking two or three hour episodes to cover a story, but always keeping you interested in that story. 
Since they first launched in 2014, they've logged over 30 million downloads, so they've got a lot of fans. To find them, you can visit Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast provider and search for Astonishing Legends. Again, that's Astonishing Legends. Or just visit AstonishingLegends.com for more information. Enjoy! Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Don't forget our ongoing contest now through June 15, 2018, where we will be doing a drawing from our premium subscriber list for a free Kindle Paperwhite, lighted with a Wi-Fi connection, a package valued at $150. To be eligible, you need to be a 1001 subscriber. And those are the fans that support our show with a monthly pledge of $299. 1001 Heroes and the 1001 Network is an independent podcast, not run by a podcast group or broadcast corporation, and always appreciative of the support we get. Our growth is mostly accomplished by word of mouth. You're sharing our show with others. Thanks to all of you who think of us and share us. And now, a bonus new episode and a surprising eyewitness who was a young newspaperman and chronicler at the time of the San Francisco earthquake in Welcome to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. The story of an eyewitness, the San Francisco earthquake. The author, Jack London. The earthquake shook down in San Francisco hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of walls and chimneys, but the conflagration that followed burned up hundreds of millions of dollars worth of property. There is no estimating within hundreds of millions the actual damage wrought. Not in history has a modern imperial city been so completely destroyed. San Francisco is gone. Nothing remains of it but memories and a fringe of dwelling houses on its outskirts. Its industrial section is wiped out. Its business section is wiped out. Its social and residential section is wiped out. The factories and warehouses the great stores and newspaper buildings, the hotels and the palaces of the nabobs, are all gone. Remains only the fringe of dwelling houses on the outskirts 
of what was once San Francisco. Within an hour after the earthquake shock, the smoke of San Francisco's burning was a lurid tower visible a hundred miles away. And for three days and nights, this lurid tower swayed in the sky, reddening the sun, darkening the day, filling the land with smoke. On Wednesday morning, at a quarter past five, came the earthquake. A minute later, the flames were leaping upward. In a dozen different quarters south of Market Street, in the working-class ghetto, and in the factories, fires started. There was no opposing the flames. There was no organization, no communication. All the cunning adjustments of a 20th century city had been smashed by the earthquake. The streets were humped into ridges and depressions and piled with the debris of fallen walls. The steel rails were twisted into perpendicular and horizontal angles. The telephone and telegraph systems were disrupted. And the great water mains had burst. All the shrewd contrivances and safeguards of man had been thrown out of gear by thirty seconds twitching of the earth crust. By Wednesday afternoon, in sight of twelve hours, half the heart of the city was gone. At that time, I watched the vast conflagration from out on the bay. It was a dead calm. Not a flicker of wind stirred. Yet from every side, wind was pouring in upon the city. East, west, north, and south, strong winds were blowing upon the doomed city. The heated air rising made an enormous suck. Thus did the fire of itself build its own colossal chimney through the atmosphere. Day and night this dead calm continued, and yet, near to the flames, the wind was often half a gale, so mighty was the suck. Wednesday night saw the destruction of the very heart of the city. Dynamite was lavishly used, and many of San Francisco's proudest structures were crumbled by man himself into ruins, but there was no withstanding the onrush of the flames. Time and again successful stands were made by the firefighters, and every time the flames flanked around on one side or the other and turned to defeat the hard-won victory. An enumeration of the buildings destroyed would be a directory of San Francisco. An enumeration of the buildings undestroyed would be a line and several addresses. An enumeration of the deeds of heroism would stock a library and bankrupt the Carnegie Medal Fund. An enumeration of the dead will never be made. All vestiges of them were destroyed by the flames. The number of the victims of the earthquake will never be known. South of Market Street, where the loss of life was particularly heavy, was the first to catch fire. Remarkable as it may seem, Wednesday night, while the whole city crashed and roared into ruin, was a quiet night. There were no crowds. There was no shouting and yelling. There was no hysteria, no disorder. I passed Wednesday night in the path of the advancing flames, and in all those terrible hours I saw not one woman who wept, not one man who was excited, not one person who was in the slightest degree panic-stricken. Before the flames, throughout the night, fled tens of thousands of homeless ones. Some were wrapped in blankets. Others carried bundles of bedding and dear household treasures. Sometimes a whole family was harnessed to a carriage or delivery wagon that was weighted down with their possessions. Baby buggies, toy wagons, and go-karts were used as trucks, while every other person was dragging a trunk. Yet everybody was gracious 
the most perfect courtesy obtained. Never in all San Francisco's history were her people so kind and courteous as on this night of terror. At night these tens of thousands fled before the flames. Many of them, the poor people from the labor ghetto, had fled all day as well. They had left their homes burdened with possessions. Now and again they lightened up, flinging out upon the street clothing and treasures they had dragged for miles. They held on longest to their trunks, and over these trunks many a strong man broke his heart that night. The hills of San Francisco are steep, and up these hills, mile after mile, were the trunks dragged. Everywhere were trunks, with across them, lying their exhausted owners, men and women. Before the march of the flames were flung picket lines of soldiers, and a block at a time, as the flames advanced, these pickets retreated. One of their tasks was to keep the trunk pullers moving. The exhausted creatures, stirred on by the menace of bayonets, would arise and struggle up the steep pavements, pausing from weakness every five or ten feet. Often, after surmounting a heartbreaking hill, they would find another wall of flame advancing upon them at right angles and be compelled to charge anew the line of their retreat. In the end, completely played out, after toiling for a dozen hours like giants, thousands of them were compelled to abandon their trunks. Here the shopkeepers and soft members of the middle class were at a disadvantage. But the working men dug holes in vacant lots and backyards and buried their trunks. At nine o'clock Wednesday evening, I walked down through the very heart of the city. I walked through miles and miles of magnificent buildings and towering skyscrapers. Here was no fire on Wednesday evening. All was in perfect order. The police patrolled the streets. Every building had its watchman at the door. And yet, it was doomed, all of it. There was no water. The dynamite was giving out. And at right angles, two different conflagrations were sweeping down upon it. At one o'clock in the morning, I walked down through the same section. Everything still stood intact. There was no fire. And yet, there was a change. A rain of ashes was falling. The watchmen at the doors were gone. The police had been withdrawn. There were no firemen, no fire engines, no men fighting with dynamite. The district had been absolutely abandoned. I stood at the corner of Kearney and Market in the very innermost heart of San Francisco. Kearney Street was deserted. Half a dozen blocks away, it was burning on both sides. The street was a wall of flame, and against this wall of flame, silhouetted sharply, were two United States cavalrymen sitting their horses, calmly watching. That was all. Not another person was in sight. In the intact heart of the city, two troopers sat their horses and watched. Surrender was complete. There was no water. The sewers had long since been pumped dry. There was no dynamite. Another fire had broken out further uptown, and now, from three sides, conflagrations were sweeping down. The fourth side had been burned earlier in the day. In that direction stood the tottering walls of the Examiner Building, the burned-out call building, the smoldering ruins of the Grand Hotel, and the gutted, devastated, dynamited Palace Hotel. The following will illustrate the sweep of the flames and the inability of men to calculate their spread. At eight o'clock Wednesday evening, 
I passed through Union Square. It was packed with refugees. Thousands of them had gone to bed on the grass. Government tents had been set up. Supper was being cooked, and the refugees were lining up for free meals. At half past one in the morning, three sides of Union Square were in flames. The fourth side, where stood the great St. Francis Hotel, was still holding out. An hour later, ignited from top and sides, the St. Francis was flaming heavenward. Union Square, heaped high with mountains of trunks, was deserted. Troops, refugees, and all had retreated. It was at Union Square that I saw a man offering a thousand dollars for a team of horses. He was in charge of a truck piled high with trunks from some hotel. It had been hauled here into what was considered safety, and the horses had been taken out. The flames were on three sides of the square, and there were no horses. Also, at this time, standing beside the truck, I urged a man to seek safety in flight. He was all but hemmed in by several conflagrations. He was an old man, and he was on crutches. Said he, "'Today is my birthday.' Last night, I was worth $30,000. I bought five bottles of wine, some delicate fish, and other things for my birthday dinner. I have had no dinner, and all I own are these crutches. I convinced him of his danger and started him limping on his way. An hour later, from a distance, I saw a truckload of trunks burning merrily in the middle of the street. On Thursday morning, at a quarter past five, just 24 hours after the earthquake, I sat on the steps of a small residence on Knob Hill. With me sat Japanese, Italians, Chinese, and Negroes, a bit of the cosmopolitan flotsam of the wreck of the city. All about were palaces of the Nabob pioneers of 49. To the east and south at right angles were advancing two mighty walls of flame. I went inside with the owner of the house on the steps of which I sat. He was cool and cheerful and hospitable. "'Yesterday morning,' he said, "'I was worth six hundred thousand dollars. "'This morning, this house is all I have left. "'It will go in fifteen minutes.' "'He pointed to a large cabinet. "'That is my wife's collection of china. "'This rug upon which we stand is a present. "'It cost fifteen hundred dollars. "'Try that piano. "'Listen to its tone. "'There are few like it. "'There are no horses. "'The flames will be here.' in 15 minutes. Outside the old Mark Hopkins residence, a palace was just catching fire. The troops were falling back and driving the refugees before them. From every side came the roaring of flames, the crashing of walls, and the detonations of dynamite. The dawn of the second day. I passed out of the house. Day was trying to dawn through the smoke pall. A sickly light was creeping over the face of things. Once, only the sun broke through the smoke pall, blood red, and showing quarter its usual size. The smoke pall itself, viewed from beneath, was a rose color that pulsed and flooded with lavender shades. Then it turned to mauve and yellow and dun. There was no sun. And so dawned the second day on stricken San Francisco. An hour later I was creeping past the shuttered dome of the city hall. There was no better exhibition of the destructive force of the earthquake. Most of the stone had been shaken from the great dome, leaving standing the naked framework of steel. Market Street was piled high with the wreckage, and across the wreckage lay the overthrown pillars of the city hall, shattered into short, 
crosswise sections. This section of the city, with the exception of the mint and the post office, was already a waste of smoking ruins. Here and there, through the smoke, creeping warily under the shadows of tottering walls, emerged occasional men and women. It was like the meeting of the handful of survivors after the day of the end of the world. On Mission Street lay a dozen steers in a neat row stretching across the street, just as they had been struck down by the flying ruins of the earthquake. The fire had passed through afterward and roasted them. The human dead had been carried away before the fire came. At another place on Mission Street I saw a milk wagon. A steel telegraph pole had smashed down sheer through the driver's seat and crushed the front wheels. The milk cans lay scattered around. All day Thursday and all Thursday night, all day Friday and Friday night, the flames still raged on. Friday night saw the flames finally conquered, though not until Russian Hill and Telegraph Hill had been swept and three-quarters of a mile of wharves and docks had been licked up. The great stand of the firefighters was made Thursday night on Van Ness Avenue. Had they failed here, the comparatively few remaining houses of the city would have been swept. Here were the magnificent residences of the second generation of San Francisco nabobs, and these, in a solid zone, were dynamited down across the path of the fire. Here and there the flames leaped the zone, but these fires were beaten out, principally by the use of wet blankets and rugs. San Francisco, at the present time, is like the crater of a volcano, around which are camped tens of thousands of refugees. At the Presidio alone are at least 20,000. All the surrounding cities and towns are jammed with the homeless ones, where they are being cared for by the relief committees. The refugees were carried free by the railroads to any point they wished to go, and it is estimated that over 100,000 people have left the peninsula on which San Francisco stood. The government has the situation in hand, and thanks to the immediate relief given by the whole United States, there is not the slightest possibility of a famine. The bankers and businessmen have already set about making preparations to rebuild San Francisco. 1906, Jack London Thank you everyone for being with us. I hope you enjoyed this story and this piece of history. We'll see you next week.